My name's Callum Coomber, and I'm here with Mark Reed Blatovich. Together, we form the duo Pasingenda Gadaland, and we're currently in the process of writing an album. In this series, Wordlender, we speak to a guest artist every week who has some connection to the landscape in their day-to-day practice. Today, we're joined Jackie Garland, a well-established researcher of social welfare laws and policies, and their effect on people in relation to gender, disability, age, and other inequalities. Her book, Gender Work and Social Control, A Century of Disability Benefits, was published in 2019 and won the Social Policy Association Richard Titmus Book Award last year. Aside from her academic work, Jackie is also an ardent gardener, working on the front and back gardens of her house, as well as an allotment close by. She runs a blog entitled Reclaiming Paradise, in which she documents her gardening adventures, as well as occasionally veering off to other topics of interest. Yeah, so, so welcome, Jackie. Hi. Um, my, my first question is, uh, what, what part does gardening play in your life? And how does it contrast or complement your day job? Um, okay, so gardening is something I've, I've always done. Well, ever since I've had a garden, I've always gardened. Um, what part does it play in my life? It's something, it is my life, really. It's something that it, I can't imagine not having a garden, put it that way. Um, and so um, I, I, I don't have time to spend a lot of time in the garden. But my weekends and my evenings in the summer are spent in the garden. Um, how does it complement my working life? Um, mainly it's a complete contrast. When I'm in the garden, I'm doing something different and I'm not thinking about work. So it's something that I do when I'm not at work, basically. Yeah. Um, and when did you start growing plants and your own food? Um, I, I've been growing plants since my um, early 20s. Since I was a student, I had always had house plants. I always grew plants, um, but I tended to live in quite dark and dingy flats where it wasn't possible to grow food. So it was only just—it was mainly house plants, just for decoration. As soon as I was able to have a flat with um, a sunny window, I started growing tomato plants, and then as soon as I was able to get a house with my own garden, I started growing vegetables. That was what I saw. That was the purpose of the garden, was to grow vegetables. And so when I first got a house with a garden, that's what I did. I started growing vegetables and I've been doing it ever since. And it's been quite a long time now. Yeah, 25 years or so. Yeah, yeah. In, in your like early life, because uh, I grew up on Fair Isle, right? Yeah. Um, was that not quite important to be a bit more self-sufficient living in such an isolated place? It was important in terms of contact with the natural world. Definitely, yeah, an awareness of the weather and awareness of the changing seasons and awareness of the wildlife. Um, it wasn't a great place for growing vegetables. Um, okay. my, dad, my dad always had a garden. He always grew vegetables. But the real problem in the islands is salt. Hmm. And so um, unless you can cover them, nowadays people have um, polytunnels and that's what they use in the islands to grow vegetables. Now, and, and the main purpose of the, of the polytunnels is to keep the salt off the vegetables but back in those days um those things had not well they had been actually there was there was somebody else who lived on the island who grew tomatoes he had these mini polytunnels that he had invented and he grew tomatoes but generally speaking you couldn't grow very much apart from kind of potatoes and carrots and turnips and kind of root veg like that and even those my dad gave up on in those days 
um, when we moved away and lived in other places, um, he he always had vegetables. He always had potatoes and carrots and black currants, and they were just always there. I, I never took much interest in them, I have to say, at that time in my life. But um, my dad always had vegetables in the garden. But when I had my first garden, that was what I was going to do. I was going to grow vegetables. And so that's what I did. Um, I branched out a little bit into flowers when I had my children because my sons preferred flowers. And so they insisted <laughs> they insisted that I grew flowers as well. So um, now I have both. Yeah. I'm sure the f adding flowers probably helped, you know, to attract bees and help Absolutely. pollinate your, your food. It does. Well. They don't have to compete. I mean, they compete for space, but mm. I grow flowers in the places that I'm not growing vegetables and I grow flowers or I allow flowers to grow in amongst the vegetables. Things will self-seed themselves and so I let them grow there. Um, but I don't kind of devote entire areas of the garden to sort of perfecting flowers. They have to, they have to fit in basically around the vegetables, yeah. So I guess you document a lot of this, of your goings on in the garden and all, all your all your kind of gardening activity on your blog, yeah. Reclaiming Paradise. So c yeah. maybe you could just tell us a bit about that title and what's the story behind it? Yeah, well, when I started the blog, which was seven years ago now, I was looking for a name for it. And um, I had it dated back really to the garden, my first garden, not the one I live in now. And when I lived in that garden, um, when I moved into the house, it, the entire back garden was covered in gravel and the entire front garden was covered in gravel. And so I quite naively thought it would be quite easy to just dig this up and turn it into a garden. It turned out to be a much more complicated process than that and it took quite a long time. But I did, and I, I, at the time I thought, you know, one day maybe I'll write a book about how to turn a gravel garden into a vegetable patch. Because at that time, there were a lot of television programmes where they had garden makeovers and everybody else was digging up their lawns and turning them into paving and gravel. And I was doing the opposite. So back then, I thought that would be a good, that would be a good thing for a book to make about how to, turn, how to turn gravel into a garden. And then I was thinking about, so when I started the blog, I thought, well, I'll kind of build on that idea. And then I thought what, what came up with the title um, was I remembered back earlier in, in, in my in my life I had worked um in a local council office and in the office there was a there was a small car park which had room for about two cars and there were two beautiful holly trees in the car park which I you know we looked at them every day and we enjoyed them and you know there was berries and we loved the holly trees. And then one one morning we went in and they had they had cut down the holly trees and paved over that small space and made room for two more cars. And that was, to me, was just horrific that they had got, got rid of these beautiful mature trees just for the sake of a couple of cars and a car park. And so that put me in mind of Joni Mitchell's song, um, Big Yellow Taxi, which has this line, which I'm sure you'll know, um, paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to dig up the parking lots and put paradise in. And so that's what I did in my my previous house. I dug up the gravel and filled it with vegetables. And the front garden, which had been a car park, I dug up and filled it with. There weren't any vegetables in the front garden, but there were lots of flowers and bees and things. And then when I moved to the house I'm in now, it was kind of the same. The front garden had been paved over 
and there had been room for a couple of cars and I don't have a car so I don't have need for a parking space anyway so um so I've dug it up and filled it with um, flowers and well herbs and flowers mainly so I thought well there's my title so you know um instead of paving paradise I'll reclaim it so so that was the title so reclaiming paradise is the title of the blog so that's the story behind it yeah it's a kind of anti-car um campaign actually you know, we'd rather, I'd much rather have vegetables and flowers. And, and, and as you said, the wildlife. So I have bees and birds and butterflies and insects and ladybirds and things, which wouldn't, wouldn't have been there before because there was nowhere for them to go. Yeah, and that's the title. Great. So how many plant species um, now grow on your reclaimed paradise? Okay, I don't think I know the answer to that. I think one of the, the reasons for that question is that last year during um, during the lockdown, um, there was a fundraising campaign called the 2.6 Challenge, which was um, launched to replace the London, the London Marathon had been cancelled because of the lockdown. And so lots of charities had lost out on money, on money because people weren't, weren't raising money for the for the um, the marathon, so they just said this thing where they said because the, the London Marathon is twenty six miles, they said do twenty six things for charity, and then you know raise money for it. So um, I did that with, well, with my family, with between us, we each, we all agreed to do twenty six things, and I thought, well, what are my twenty six things going to be? And I thought, you know what, I think, I think in April, this was April last year, I think there's probably twenty six different edible plants in my garden on the 26th of April so I went around the garden and I, I counted them all up and I took photographs and I came up with 26 different vegetables or fruits that were at some stage of development in my garden on, in April I mean most of them were not at that point edible but you know they were either seedlings that were you know going to grow into tomato plants or they were apple trees or something so that was 26 so it was 26 vegetables in my garden I think that's probably average probably most years I'll grow about 26 different fruit and vegetables but there's a lot more than that because I've also got a whole lot of herbs if I counted them I probably could have had another 26 and then there's there's other things there are flowers there's roses and daffodils and yeah there's flowers and there's some trees and bushes and things so I don't know maybe a hundred different things I don't know something like that obviously I'm really good friends with your eldest son and that I'm, you know, coming around to your house and eating a lot of kind of unconventional foods, I suppose it was for me. You know, strange tomatoes that I'd never seen and strange spiky cucumbers mm. um, and flowers and, and things like that, you know, just things that I would never even consider food, really. So mm. I guess mm -hmm. my question is like, do, does growing your own food make you more open to what you define as food? Yeah, I, mean, I experiment. I don't experiment a lot, but, you know, I discover that something like a nasturtium flower is edible and I think, well, let's try that, you know. Um, the cucumbers and tomatoes, I mean, obviously they, I, I've grown them from seeds, you know, from a packet that told me that that's what they were. Um, you need to be a bit sensible. I wouldn't try eating things if I didn't know they were edible. But I, yeah, I, I went to a thing, um, the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh had an event um, a few years ago where they had this thing called weed pesto and they said you can use all these different weeds and make your own pesto and so that used wild garlic and I um, can't remember what else actually, nettles and yeah various kinds of weeds so I, 
yeah, I, I, I wouldn't try them without checking somewhere that it was okay. So I make weed pesto sometimes. The nettles were interesting. I thought, because the, the recipe said to use them raw, and I thought, hmm, not sure about that. You might get a bit stung if you do that. So I read somewhere else, actually, that what you need to do is just put them in boiling water first, and that'll get rid of the sting. And then you make your pesto out with the nettles and the wild garlic and whatever you can find. Yeah, I'm willing to try these things. We, we learned last week that the, the wild garlic, or I think it's particularly the, the few flowered leek, uh, it's actually, yeah, it's like an invasive species and the epicenter is actually Edinburgh. Like it started in Edinburgh. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of it. There's a lot of it in actually near where I live. And I've got a wee bit in my garden and I'm a bit worried, actually. Yeah, so did, might... did you put it there on purpose or did it just kind of... Yeah, oh. I did actually. I did and I'm a bit worried. I might actually take it take it up because it might that happens with things that you think oh that's nice and then you go wait a minute that's taken over completely and so you have to even um so-called weeds or wildflowers that you quite like occasionally you have to think no wait a minute i need to i need to pull you back in a bit because you're taking over that can happen with other plants as well so yeah I think I might remove the wild garlic before it. Yeah, you should watch out because, I mean, just walking along the water of leaf, it's like It's everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, it's a great thing to be a weed because it's so edible, but yeah. Hmm. So when you're putting a lot of time and effort into, into growing all, all of the different foods that you do, um, d does the experience of... Um, of, of eating, eating it or your experience with food change at all? Um, I don't know really. I I mean, I do all my own cooking anyway. I mean, I, I cook everything, well, not everything, but almost everything from scratch anyway. There's a certain, there's a huge pleasure in, in growing something that you've, in eating something you've grown yourself. I mean, it just, I never fail to be excited by the first tomato or a, or a new potato. It's even better if you can share it with other people. I mean, that's, that's the best bit, actually, especially people who are, yeah, sometimes your own family might get a bit, oh, there, goes, there she goes again, she's got her new tomatoes. But, you know, <laughs> when you've got visitors or people visiting, you can go, oh, look, you know, I grew this myself. And, yeah, people like Mark will be like, wow, that's amazing, that's a spiky cucumber. <laughs> Whereas, you know, your own family might be a bit, oh, like, there she goes again, there's her cucumbers yeah. again. But, no, I mean, there's a huge pleasure. There's a huge pleasure in growing your own food. It, I, I, every year it... it it excites me again yeah especially I think the very earliest things you know I had a few bits of salad the other day that was kind of the first thing and the rhubarb has just come it's like oh wow you know the season started and it'll keep going till about Christmas and then there's a bit between about January and March when you don't get so much but yeah it's very exciting yeah kind of leading into your gardening techniques um, oh yeah you mentioned uh Ethland Ferns a reluctant gardener in your blog and her approach is sort of as far as I can tell to minimize work and to maximize self-sustainability um, I was just wondering how you practice that yeah so that's a wonderful book it was published in 1952 and it's a humorous book and it's full of cartoons and she makes this argument that you know you can you can be a gardener and you can do gardening and be lazy and 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 she argues you know the purpose is to let the garden grow itself and then you can spend more time just lying in a sun lounger kind of reading a book i i don't that's not my approach to garden actually i never 
I almost never sit in the garden and read a book because whenever I go into the garden, I do think to myself, I'll sit and have a cup of tea and I, I just always spot a weed or something that needs to be cut back. And I, I can't just sit in the garden. I, just, I never do. So no, I'm not really, a, I'm not a reluctant gardener at all. But, but some of the things that she suggests are, which she was suggesting in the 1950s, are still are still relevant or more important today because she says things like, well, don't grow things that won't grow in your garden. So don't go to a lot of effort to grow something that's not going to be happy. And um, and she's also, she was an organic gardener, although she doesn't um, call it that. And so it's like, you know, don't spend a lot of time and money on pesticides when actually what you need to do is to encourage the predators. So, you know, encourage the ladybirds and they'll eat the green fly and that'll make, and she just, it's, it's humorous, but she says, you know, that'll, that's less work for you then. So I follow that, you know. So, like, um, I love that philosophy of letting the system kind of fix itself because all, all the all the parts are there. You don't need to be. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't always quite work like that because you always get you usually get end up with more green fly than you really want, and certainly more slugs and snails than you really want, and some things just get destroyed by um, pests, wildlife, whatever you call it. Um, and you just have to live with that from time to time or or have have methods for knowing how to protect like so for slugs and snails you know kind of grow things i start things off in pots and then plant them out to give them a bit of a chance but that's not that's potentially more work so it's not really a, mm. it's not really the lazy way yeah but you know i i, I read this incredible thing about uh native american uh particularly this this group of people called the Iroquois I think mm -hmm. and they they had a farming method which was they called it the three sisters and they mm -hmm. had like I think it was corn uh, some kind of squash mm -hmm. and beans mm -hmm. and like the three these three things like you know gave a balanced diet yeah and they also the way they grew like the corn would grow and then would act as a kind of bean pole for the beans yeah. mm -hmm. and then the the squash would be in between and it would uh, the leaves would kind of cover the soil so protecting the soil yeah. also chemically like you know you're getting enough nitrogen and it's just like this very well balanced yeah. kind of counterpoint of, of vegetables yeah. and it's just like it, it just seems so amazing that that's actually something that just works in nature yeah. you know? sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't one thing I, I discovered so I always grew runner beans actually because they that's so following Ethelin Fearon's advice I discovered over 25 years ago that runner beans was something that I could grow and would grow relatively easily in my Edinburgh garden. So I've always grown them and I grow them the same way every year. Um, so they grow up a, a pole, like a wigwam. And so I've tried on different years growing different things in the middle of the poles. Um, and so certain things go quite well there because for precisely that reason. So they get the shelter from the beans and then they mature once the beans are finished and so certain kinds of things like Swiss chard I think is the one that's been the most successful does quite well there but this year last year I planted broccoli in the runner bean thing um, thinking it would have a similar effect but actually what happened is the broccoli completely took over and I had these massive they're still there actually massive broccoli plants and they just took everything away from the runner beans and the runner beans didn't do very well at all. And so it's like, you just, you need to get that balance right. Sometimes that doesn't work. So I won't be, I won't be growing broccoli with the runner beans again. It was great for the broccoli, but it was rubbish for the runner beans. So you need to kind of think about that.
that bit. But that's trial and error. I guess building on what Mark talked about, um, kind of Native American farming practices, does what you do in your gardening make you more aware of um, farming practices and kind of food brought from the supermarket and the food industry in general? Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't make me more aware of it. I mean, I suppose I've I've had these two interests hand in hand. I've you know I you know I was interested in environmental issues and you know I was a member of Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and all these things. Um, you know, since my student days. Um, so in fact, before I started doing my own vegetable growing, I'd always been interested and um, concerned about these things. And so when I started growing my own vegetables, I was very, you know, determined I was going to be organic grower um, and have been um, ever since. Um, I think the main thing it makes you aware of is, is seasonal vegetables. Yeah, like green beans or something. You really don't need those in the winter. And so if you can buy them in January, I'm thinking, well, those have been imported. And I always look, actually, when I'm buying vegetables in the supermarket, which I do have to do because I don't grow everything myself, I do look at where it comes from. And so if something's come from Peru or Australia or something, I'm thinking, well, you know what? Do I really need that? You know, um, so it, it makes me very much more aware of seasonal vegetables and 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 also the again it's the joy of you know you growing tomato if you eat tomatoes in the summer when they're you know when they're in season it, it makes them more special somehow I think and so there's certain kinds of things I would just never I would never buy in the winter because I would just think no we need to wait for the summer for that but I also know I mean, I'm not naive enough about it you know I don't think I know I can't be self-sufficient in my garden I don't have enough space. I don't have enough time. And so the idea that everybody could just grow their own vegetables and we wouldn't have to have um, a sort of industrial farming is, I mean, that's naive. We do need to have it, but but it could be more sustainable. And we could all, we could all eat more seasonally. We could all try and, I do try, I try and buy local, you know, locally grown or relatively locally grown stuff if I am buying vegetables, support the local growers, you know. But they've got, I mean, that's another thing you learn. I know how difficult it is to grow things. And so if you're trying to do that commercially and that's your life, you know, that's your um, that's your income and your crop fails or the slugs eat everything, you know, that's a big deal. It's not a big deal for me, but it is if you're doing it commercially. You need to think about it. Yeah. So I, I guess for those who don't have a garden, there's, as you mentioned earlier, um, planting things on your windowsills or, or house plants, but there's also gorilla gardening, which we discussed briefly yeah. the other day. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not something I've ever done, but there are people who kind of take over kind of roundabouts or little patches of of abandoned land and grow their own vegetables. I've never done it, but it's a it's a good idea. Again, I think it's it probably doesn't have a dramatic doesn't make a dramatic difference to anything, but it's um as a kind of principle, this land could be used to grow food and it's not being used that way. So yeah, it's a good, it's a great idea. I like the idea of it. But you can grow quite a lot in pots. I mean, I did, you know, before I had my own garden, I grew tomatoes and I've passed that on to my sons. And so I do grow, I, I grow, um, you know, every year I grow a few, well, it's not always happened, but you know, I grow a few seedlings and I pass them on. And, uh, you know, actually Mark, because you probably had some of my, tomatoes in your flat at one time and you know I actually here's a here's a strange connection because I think I had one of your chili plants um which I left after my first year in Manchester I left it in the instrument store oh, yeah 
for someone to pick up and to like water over the summer and they didn't do it so it just li lived there and then Callum you eventually oh, picked really? it up did I um, uh. yeah and it was it looked it looked exactly like that um what was that the avocado oh. plant you showed oh, us right. it didn't survive it, it was just like a, <laughs> it was a, yeah it was just oh, a well, stick in the pot I was going to say it didn't, um, I don't think an instrument store so. would be a terribly good growing environment for a chili <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> but I'm not sure how compatible it, musical instruments and plants are because they kind of have slightly different needs yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe a rhubarb would have been yeah. better because they needed they need the dark yeah, but they so. need the as well the instruments probably wouldn't yeah. like that I, I, yeah. I, I guess we could just bring it back around to your yeah, blog sure. um so yeah where can we where can we find it and where can we find out more about um, your gardening yeah stuff? well the um yeah the url i think is www.reclaimingparadise.wordpress.com i think that's that's the blog. Um, I've been um, I've been I've been doing the blog for seven years, which is I, I find astonishing now. And I, I I tend to blog about once a week. I don't really have time for much more than that. So it tends to be. No, you asked earlier about how how my work and the garden go together. It tends to be something I do at the weekend. I'll just say that you write very much like how you speak, and it's very sort of just clear and and strangely really entertaining. Like you think. <laughs> You think that just hearing about someone talking about like failed tomato seeds is like how how much can you get out of that? But it's really like enthralling. There's, oh. there's narratives that come out. Um, yeah, I really I really enjoy reading. Well, it. thank you. Um, I enjoy writing it. I do it. You know, again, it comes back to kind of why I do it. I do it because it allows me to do something that's it's separate from everything else I do. You know, I I kind of it's a kind of little treat for myself to go and to write a blog post. Um, and I try to make it interesting. I try to make it positive when I can. Um, I mean, sometimes there's a disaster, but then you can write a funny story about a disaster. Um, and I try, I don't do, I don't say much about politics. Well, I don't say anything about politics, politics. Um, I could say a lot more about environmental issues, but I tend to keep that a bit low key. Um, and it's a kind of like, it's kind of, just kind of this is how I do it, you know. I I, I grow things from seeds. Um, I recycle stuff. I try not to kind of go out and just buy stuff for the sake of it, you know. I've got a hand push lawnmower. I don't really use electrical stuff in the garden. I don't have a car, um. So I kind of it's kind of like it's possible to have a garden without having all that stuff, you know. You don't need to have a car. You don't need to have a lot of electrical equipment. You don't need to spend your whole time buying stuff. But that's part of my kind of message, actually, that, that, you know, a lot of gardening that you see on television or kind of in gardening magazines and things is, is about consumerism. It's about buying stuff, you know, buy this new plant, buy this new piece of equipment, buy this new thing. Um, whereas I, you know, I, you know, yeah, it's not about that for me. It's about growing things. And that's not about buying. It's about it's just about planting a seed and watching it grow. And it's an astonishing thing. You know, I can plant, showed you this last week, I can plant a tomato seed, it's a tiny, tiny thing, you know, and a fortnight later, it's about centimetre high. But by the summer, that'll have tomatoes on it that you can eat. And that is something I still find astonishing. And trees as well. I've got apple trees, which I planted about 10 years ago. And when we moved to this house, and so you plant a stick in the ground, it really is just a stick, 
and then 10 years later, and, and trees are the easiest. You absolutely don't have to do anything to them at all. They just produce apples every year. And it's like, how is that? Those are things that just constantly delight me. And so I kind of, I want to tell people about it and that's why I blog about it. Yeah, I think that's really evident in, in the way you write in the blog. Yeah, um, good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's cool. Oh, well, it's, it's been really nice to chat to you about it. Yeah, well. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Cool. See ya.